in the front and center of a Civil War picture? Who gets the sunbeam shining? Who gets put in the shadow? How much does interpretation affect the visual imagery of the Civil War? We'll ask these questions and more to our guest, Civil War artist Don Troiani, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich. My guest today is Don Troiani, Civil War artist. And as we said in the first segment, if you're listening in and want to see the work that we're talking about, take a look uh, in a separate window on your browser at www.historicalartprints.com, and you'll be able to see some work there. Don, in the first section, we were talking briefly about horse colors. You mentioned that part of your research has to involve such visual questions as what color was uh, a given general's horse, something uh, uh, the, the writing historian doesn't usually have to think about. And then it crossed my mind that I got interested in the Civil War as, as a child in part from the fabulous Lewis Marks blue and gray playset of toy soldiers, and I still have a few of them today. And there are days, few in number, when I have enough free time that I'll take out uh, a plastic figure or two and try painting them up to look more uh, colorful. And when you do that, you need to know what color to paint things. Now, you have on your website some historical miniatures that are uh, fabulous beyond uh, belief compared to the old plastic toy soldiers. How did you get involved in doing that? Uh, well, um, a an unnamed company, I won't say they are, came to me and uh, wanted to do them, and uh, so I, I licensed that they could do two sets. And they did a pretty good job uh, on them, but they were 
we had issues with them, and then uh, another company wanted to do some, and uh, so we tried them, and uh, we had bigger issues with them. Uh, and uh, so we finally decided we'd do it ourselves, uh-huh. and uh, which we are doing. And uh, it, uh, you know, we have a great sculptor, Ken Osen, who's doing them. And uh, Osen is is particularly great because he, uh, besides being an excellent sculptor, uh, is very familiar with this stuff to start with. So I can say, you know, give the guy a uh, 1855 rifle, and, and Osen knows exactly what I mean. Um, so you know what we're trying to do with these is, you know, I, I looked at a lot of the miniatures that are being offered today, and 95% are pretty inaccurate. I mean, even by the famous companies, and, and a lot of them are terrible. So, uh, I mean, there are some good ones but that are pretty accurate, but not a lot. And uh, we decided that we could uh, we could do something better, something so, that would actually look like the real thing. In terms of accuracy, then, you mean they have perhaps the wrong rifle for a given unit or... Well, usually you can't even tell what kind of rifle it is on a lot of them. Uh, uh, the wrong colors, um, uh, the wrong kinds of uniforms. Uh, usually what one company will make something and then the other one sort of copy it. And so the mistake, you know, becomes aped, you know, down the line. Uh, you know, there was one big company that came out. They, you know, they always make the drums too small for the drummers. I mean, these little pea-sized drums are ridiculous. <laughs> you know, they're like a size of a coffee can. And, and one company even put them on upside down. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, sort of nonsensical stuff. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, well, it's the same thing with, you know, other, you know, many of the prints that are being offered today are grossly inaccurate. Uh, but the public doesn't, isn't able to spot that. You know, they don't know. They don't, I'm not sure how much they care either. But, uh, you know, a lot of what's being offered on today's market is basically fantasy nonsense. Well, you you clearly pride yourself on the opposite, that you, you take care to research these subjects. Well, that's supposed to be the point of the thing. Um, that, uh, you know, his, when you're doing a historical subject, you're, you're supposed to be recreating the scene, not creating a scene of the way everybody would have liked it to have been. Well, let me push that point with you a little bit. The right. the accuracy we're talking about, uh, if we're talking certainly about historical miniature or to some extent a historical print, uh, you need to get the the correct uniform, the colors, the cut of the jacket, the equipment. Uh, these things should be accurate, or you're you're presenting literally a visually false picture. Yes, but let me take it a step further. Then, what about the the moment itself, uh, the, the the posing of the figures, the choice of which figures are in, it, it, even the choice of which vignette of a battle to portray. How do you how do you decide what you want to show the viewer? Well, I go on basically the best evidence. In other words, you read all the accounts and you decide who was there. I mean, you know, a lot of times there's controversy about who was there. Uh, or if you're doing a battery of guns, which regiment took it? And, you know, a lot of times one regiment may have passed through the battery of guns. Uh, you know, and then the smoke, another regiment comes along and passes through them, and each one's claiming. We captured it first, and they're saying, no, we didn't. You did, uh, you know, and it goes back and forth, and you have to sort of decide. And uh, uh, same thing with different, you know, a colonel said, I may have been with General uh, Stewart when he gave this order. And then uh, somebody else is listing who was with Stewart when they gave the order, and he's not on the list. <laughs> a lot of times you have to, but, you, you know, 
you're always going to make mistakes and there are always going to be controversial things, but many people who are doing these kind of things aren't even considering that kind of information. I mean, they're just doing whatever they want. Uh, they're making, you know, putting snow on the battlefield when it wasn't because it sells better. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're uh, uh, putting flags with units that uh, hadn't even been invented at that time. There was one uh, I saw recently where a guy did uh, uh, gave Union troops corps badges at Antietam, and they hadn't even been invented yet. And they, Hooker brought those in in, in yeah, 1863, so like uh, the spring of '63, right? I mean, but, it, you know, nonsensical stuff. I mean, they always show the Irish Brigade with all kinds of these little shamrock uh, and harp insignias, which they didn't have. Some of the officers had a, a little wreath of shamrocks around the number, but that was only some of them. But the Irish Brigade pretty much looked like regular Union troops. Um, there was nothing, you know, really unusual about them. Uh, uh, the unusual part was the flags. Uh, and they didn't have the flags in every battle. You know, there, was, there was times where they were damaged and they were being turned in. They weren't available. At Fredericksburg, only the 28th Massachusetts had a green flag. But uh, if you want to sell a print to the Irish Brigade, well, you know, I mean, there's prints of the, the 20th Maine fighting for their lives at uh, Gettysburg with uh, Chamberlain firing his pistol and everything. He didn't even have the pistols with him. They were in the. Uh, uh, he didn't wear one on his belt. He had uh, two on the saddle holsters, and they were left back with the horse because they were big Colt Army revolvers or navies, and uh, you you really can't run around with those on your belt on foot all the time. Uh, they're, they're too heavy, especially when they're loaded. Uh, usually the uh, officers who are on foot all the time, you know, the captains and the lieutenants, when they carried pistols, when you mm-hmm. see the surviving pistols, these little bean shooters, little Cooper and Smith and & Wessons and Colt pocket models and stuff, because it's only a, a weapon that's really good at very, very close range when the Somebody's right in your face. So you don't really need to, you know, they didn't carry around these big horse pistols. And I, I can't remember the source where I read it. Uh, I think it was in the Vietnam era, but it pointed out if the officer's individual firepower is going to make a difference to the engagement, then he's already made so many mistakes, it's really too late. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's, that's basically it. Um, I mean, Chamberlain didn't carry pistols at Gettysburg. He had them with him, but when, you know, he left the horse, I mean, you know, there's very little expectation a colonel or, or any, any field officer is ever going to shoot anything. Right. That, that makes sense to me. It doesn't seem there's any reason. Uh, they have a larger job to do in terms of coordinating the, the forces they're responsible for. Yeah. You yeah. Know, well, that ties in with something. Uh, in terms of viewing the officer's role in, in combat or in general, uh, everybody's seen the, the famous painting of Lee and Jackson uh, at Chancellorsville. It's a sort of iconic image of the Civil War, the historical painting uh, of these two officers meeting on their horses. It is a very much a heroic painting. Uh, the two of them are uh, you know, presented as, as the, these gods of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Is is your work subject to the criticism that it, it romanticizes or, or makes into? Uh, the only criticism I get occasionally is they're not bloody enough, but <laughs> if, I, if I made them bloodier, nobody would buy the prints. Mm-hmm. So I, I try and subdue that. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of old chestnuts that, that just won't die, like A.P. Hill's red shirt. You know, I mean, the guy took off his jacket in the peninsula a couple of times, and he had a red, it wasn't even a solid red shirt, it was a figured shirt, it was a decorated shirt with mm-hmm. black and red, and maybe another color. 
And that's how he appears in painting. Uh, and the guy who did the book uh, Up Came Hill, mm-hmm. you know, immediately assumed that was A.P. Hill's outfit for the whole war. <laughs> and, you know, he's describing Hill at Gettysburg in a red shirt, here and there and get a red shirt, and then everybody else took it from there. And there's really no evidence. I mean, even Fremantle says at Gettysburg, uh, Hill was a general dressed in gray. But everybody expects, you know, and, of course, all the other artists immediately started putting him in this, you know, red Paul Bunyan shirt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's basically nonsense. So these stories get started, and they're hard. They, they then perpetuate themselves among among artists. Yeah, well, you know, uh, yeah, because everybody takes it at face value, but nobody goes to see... Uh, when I, I got an interest in it, I went to see the I wanted to see the actual accounts of A.P. Hill reading a red shirt, and I found them. And they, you know, said a red or figured shirt, or you know, red and black shirt, or whatever. And they were all in the same time frame at uh, during the peninsula. And uh, now he may have had red shirts, you know, a couple up more or something like that, but it, it certainly wasn't a straight red shirt, you know, like a fireman's shirt. And he wasn't wearing it all the time. I mean, you know, he wasn't wearing it at Antietam. He wasn't wearing it at Gettysburg. Um, or at least there's no evidence of it. Uh, the only time, it's something that would have been commented on if he was wearing it all the time. Uh, you know, Fremantle certainly wouldn't have said a general dressed in gray if he was wearing a red shirt. Uh, I mean, maybe it's, you know, tucked under his tunic, but nobody's looking at it. You know, how, how long can you wear a shirt before it falls apart? There is that, and I think a lot of Civil War soldiers tested that. Uh, you know, and somebody like Hill probably would have had a dozen shirts. One, one would think. And Now, that brings up another question about color research that, that occurs to me. If uh, I worked for a number of years in a museum, and we had a, a Zouave jacket on display, which was very faded. Uh, the, it had a sort of pea-green body that I think might originally have been blue. It had a part that was clearly red, but not a very bright red. Mm-hmm. And yet the descriptions, and certainly many of the prints, show uh, Civil War Zouaves in very bright, uh, vivid scarlet and deep, rich blue and shining gold. It, it depended what kind of dye was used. If it was a logwood dye, not an indigo, they could uh, they could change color pretty quick, I mean, within weeks. Uh, actually, the descriptions of the Louisiana Tigers in brown jackets are, are pretty much that, where they, the dye broke down in literally a few weeks. So they started as red jackets and became what? brown? Uh, yeah, they didn't wear... Uh, well, they, their descriptions of them in brown jackets, but it's basically the blue ones that have changed color. The blue ones. I see. Blue, but turned brown. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the blue will go sort of a brownish, or, or it could go pea green. You know, it, it depends. Uh, I have some caps in my collection that have turned to like the color of like cream of pea soup. And, and that's and so. My question there is then: How does that affect one's research? If uh, take another example, and here I've come across this with people again who paint uh, paint miniature figures. What color were uh, Union or Confederate artillery pieces? The, the woodwork of them. Well, there are, you know the uh, the Confederate ones could vary, but the Union ones were usually olive green or you know, the black trim. But of course, the one thing everybody forgets is. Uh, you know, when you see these, you know, a lot of the current paintings, the guns are all nice and clean. If you look at the period photographs, they're covered with mud. I mean, uh, you know, one one trip up a, uh, you know, muddy road, and the wheels are going to be caked with it. If you look at the good sketches like Wode and uh, uh, Forbes and stuff, you see the muddy wheels and the cannons, and they, you know, they're all splashed with mud. They'd clean them up when they were back in camp, but, uh, you know, uh, everything is going to be covered with mud and dust. 
So, uh, so the the, the barrels are kept shiny. But the other thing too is you know, when they're shooting those things, you know the the muzzles turn black, you know from the black powder, and then the black powder residue turns white. So you're going to have a a black muzzle with sort of like a white crown behind that. Interesting. That uh, you know that. For, let me ask you how you know that. Is this from from seeing black powder cannon being shot today? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's right. the effect you, know, you get. You get the the powder residue. They mentioned the blackened muzzles and stuff at the time too. Right. But uh, basically, you know, when you're, you know, the, if you look at the photos, the period photos, you know, when batteries are lined up and stuff, you see the mud splashed all over the the wheels and everything. Uh, plus, you know, cannon carriages got struck by bullets and uh, you know dented and uh, you know so they're going to be, you know, they're going to look pretty tired pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of the paint may be chipped off. They'd repaint them, you know, in camp and keep, try and keep them as good as possible. But when they're really on the move, uh, you know, you couldn't. So, so the uh, well, that ties in with my question about romanticizing the war. You, your illustrations, your your paintings uh, and prints portray the uh, figures in a more field condition uh, yeah. than than yeah. they would be on parade. Let's say, well, you know, I, I try to you know my best to paint it the way it would have looked. That's the goal, um, you know, not not the way people would like it to look. Um, but you know, some people like it the other way too. You know, the, the romantic uh, uh, version, you know, or whatever they're used to from television or whatever. Television and movies are a big influence. It's certainly, everybody's visual memory is filled with images they've encountered on TV and movies more than. More than from from static art. From, I mean, from you know, a lot of the early Confederate battle flags, the first art of, of Northern Virginia battle flags were pink. Really, they couldn't get the red silk, so they had, they had to settle for pink or uh, sort of like a whitish pink. And they were using those in the peninsula, but you know, uh, people don't like to see them. So, have you ever done an illustration or a yeah. painting with a yeah. pink battle flag? Yeah. Was, uh, how does that go over? Um, not not as well as <laughs> if they were red. Uh, now, how do people respond to your work? Do you ever, do you get people ever saying your work is you know, clearly the work of a Yankee uh, abolitionist, or you're clearly a rebel sympathizer? No, yeah, I mean, I, I've had you get some things like you know, one, one guy complained I was com- painting the uh, all the Confederate generals too short, and it was you know a part of a plot to diminish uh, <laughs> their role in history. I mean, once in a while. Some kind of crank thing like that, but no, I paint the Confederates as much or more than the Union, so there's there's no problem. Well, we'll come back in just a minute here on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk more with Don Troiani. Discuss uh, further issues in Civil War art when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 